Section 23 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Twelfth day, May the 27th. The opening of the court this morning presented the same extraordinary scene of excitement which was witnessed yesterday. The court was filled immediately after the opening of the doors, and throughout the day long, the old bailey was thronged with persons anxious to learn the progress of the summing up or to obtain admission into the court the prisoner exhibited no marked change in his appearance occasionally he listened with attention to lord campbell's charge and passed notes to his counsel but for the most part there was much of apparent indifference in his demeanour the lord chief justice baron alderson and mr justice cresswell took their seats on the bench at ten o'clock his lordship commenced this morning by observing that at the adjournment yesterday evening he had laid before the jury all the evidence for the prosecution, and certainly this evidence presented a serious case against the prisoner. It appeared that in the middle of November last the prisoner was involved in pecuniary difficulties of a most formidable character, and from which he could not have possibly extricated himself without the most extraordinary means. At this period, the prisoner accompanied the deceased to Shrewsbury Races, where the deceased won a large sum of money, and where, it was alleged, the prisoner formed the design of getting possession of the deceased's property. Before and after the death, the prisoner took steps to collect all the money due to the deceased, and resorted to a device for securing the horse, Polestar, which also had belonged to the deceased. In fact, had the plans of the prisoner, as developed in the evidence, succeeded, he would have become possessed of all the deceased's property, and hence it could not be said that he would have derived no benefit from the death of his friend, nor could it be urged that the balance of advantages was in favour of his wishing the deceased to live. Hence there was a strong motive for the committal of the crime imputed to the prisoner and with this knowledge in their possession it was for the jury to determine whether the symptoms of the deceased justified the conclusion of the scientific evidence for the prosecution that death was the result of poisoning by strychnine it was true that no strychnine had been found in the deceased's stomach but in point of law there was no necessity that it should be found to justify the conviction of the prisoner if there were other and sufficient evidence to satisfy the minds of the jury that such a poison had been administered well now there were two instances in evidence here beyond all question strychnine had been administered and yet no traces of it could be found after death while another portion of the evidence went to show that the body could be so prepared by antimony and similar deadly drugs as entirely to destroy all traces of strychnine after it had run its fatal course now in this case there was the strongest proof that antimony must have been administered to the deceased immediately before death and coupling that circumstance with the evidence of the medical men who had described first the symptoms of the deceased and secondly the symptoms usually observed in strychnine poisoning it would be for the jury to say whether the prosecution had succeeded in bringing the charge of murder home to the prisoner there were individual acts of the prisoner proved in evidence which the jury might very well consider in arriving at their final conclusion such as the fact of his having purchased or obtained strychnine from two different persons 
just previously to the death the fact of his having attempted to bribe the postboy to upset the jars the fact of his having got the postmaster to open dr taylor's letter and lastly the fact of his having tampered with the coroner to procure a verdict which would have amounted to an acquittal of the charge which was then as now hanging over his head these were the main features of the case for the prosecution and having duly weighed and considered them it would be for the jury to say whether they brought to their minds an irresistible conviction of the prisoner's guilt on the other hand numerous witnesses had been called for the defence and it remained for him to go through their evidence with the same care and patience with which he had gone over that of the prosecution like the evidence of the prosecution the evidence for the defence partook of a moral and medical character those who had been called to give the latter evidence were men of high honour of unsullied integrity and profound scientific knowledge and it was only due to them to say that in coming there they appeared to have been only actuated by a desire to speak the truth and to assist in the due administration of justice this evidence his lordship then proceeded to read over commencing with dr nunnally commenting upon that gentleman's evidence his lordship observed that dr nunnally seemed to have displayed an interest in this case which was not altogether consistent with the character of a witness he differed very much from some of the witnesses examined for the prosecution particularly in reference to rigidity being produced by strychnine after death and it would be for the jury to determine to which side they attached the most weight in these matters the next witness in order was dr herapath a gentleman who had directed much attention to the operation of poisons his lordship having read dr herapath's evidence observed that it differed from that of the prosecution in a leading particular inasmuch as it went to affirm that where death was occasioned by strychnine its traces were always discernible in the body but on cross-examination the witness admitted that he had before expressed an opinion that cook died of strychnine and that dr taylor had not taken the proper means to find it passing on to dr letheby's evidence his lordship remarked after reading it that the exceptions which in cross-examination the doctor allowed he had met with in his experience of the effects and symptoms of strychnine were sufficient to neutralize the evidence in chief so far as it went to rebut that of the prosecution the next witness was dr guy who spoke to having seen a case of idiopathic tetanus in an omnibus conductor remarking upon this evidence his lordship said it was for the jury to say whether the symptoms in this case sufficiently corresponded with those of the deceased to bring the two cases into the same class but it must be observed that there was a difference in the symptoms while there was strong evidence on record which went to show that the deceased's case was neither traumatic nor idiopathic tetanus the next evidence was that of mr ross who instanced the case where a man had died from tetanus induced by ulcers on the body but his lordship reminded the jury that in the case of the deceased there was no evidence whatever that he had suffered from wounds or sores of any kind speaking of the evidence of dr wrightson who had discovered strychnine in putrefying blood and decomposed matter and who had given an opinion that strychnine never decomposed his lordship told the jury that the doctor 
who was a man of eminent scientific attainments and unimpeachable honour, had given his evidence with becoming caution. The doctor seemed to think that the poison, if administered, ought to have been found, and in dealing with this part of the case the jury would have to consider whether it might not have existed in this case, and yet have defied the tests employed to discover it. Referring to the evidence of Dr. Partridge, his lordship said it was remarkable in this, that the symptoms of the deceased did not strictly correspond with those he should have expected in the case of a death from strychnine. His lordship next read the evidence of Dr. Guy, who spoke to a case of tetanus in a child of eight years of age, supervening from an injury to the great toe, and expressed his opinion that there was no analogy between that and this case, while the witness, his lordship added, had declared it to be his belief that attacks of tetanus could always be traceable to some collateral cause. His lordship then read the lengthy evidence of Dr. MacDonald of Edinburgh, who attributed the death of Cook to epileptic convulsions with tetanic complications, adding that it was within the range of probability that the convulsions in this case, before the fatal attack, were the result of mental excitement. His lordship reminded the jury that this was the only witness who had given a positive opinion as to the cause of death. The cause he had described, and it might, according to the witness, have arisen from mental, moral, or sexual excitement, it was for the jury to say what weight they attached to this testimony in the face of the other mass of medical evidence leading to a different conclusion. Having disposed of other witnesses, his lordship came next in order to the evidence of Dr. Richardson, who had described a remarkable case of angina pectoris, and had pronounced an opinion that the symptoms as described in Cook's case presented a singular similarity to those of the strange case referred to. It was for the jury to determine whether the deceased died from an attack of the same disease, but on cross-examination the witness admitted that the symptoms in his case might have resulted from strychnine, but at the time it occurred the effects of strychnine were not so well understood as at the present day, or he would have searched for it. Both in that case, as in Cook's case, the symptoms were, the witness said, not inconsistent with poisoning by strychnine, and that was one of the questions the jury had to decide. Having read Catherine Watson and Dr. Wrightson's evidence, his lordship said this closed the medical portion of the defence, and perhaps this would be the fitting moment for an adjournment. The court accordingly adjourned for twenty minutes. On the court resuming, his lordship continued his charge. They had now, he said, to deal with the evidence of facts adduced by the defence. The first witness of this kind was Matthews, the inspector of police at Euston Square, and from his evidence it might be taken as probable that on the Monday before the death the prisoner went down from London to Rugeley by the five o'clock express train. The next witness was Mr. Foster, the farmer, who had known the deceased for some years, and who was called to speak to the state of Cook's health. But his lordship thought the testimony of this witness, as bearing upon that particular point, was very slender. Myatt came next, who had spoken to the brandy-and-water incident at Shrewsbury, and who returned with the prisoner and the deceased from Shrewsbury to Rugeley on the Thursday before the decease. This evidence, his lordship said, 
was intended to show that the prisoner could not have tampered with the deceased's glass. It was inconsistent with the evidence of Fisher and Mrs. Brooks, who were called for the prosecution, and it would be for the jury to decide between them. Then came the evidence of Mr. Sargent, who saw the deceased's tongue and mouth a fortnight before the death, and the jury must decide whether the appearances which the witness saw were consistent with the deceased's state of health as represented by the evidence for the prosecution. His lordship then read the evidence of Mr. Jeremiah Smith, the solicitor of Rugeley, and also the three letters written by Cook to Smith, with reference to some bills which were due or overdue. The allusions to an alleged improper intimacy between the witness and the prisoner's mother, and Smith's denial of his handwriting in a document produced by the prosecution, and purporting to bear his signature, and the signature of Walter Palmer. To this point his lordship directed special attention, remarking that, as the witness said he had no doubt that he had received the document from William Palmer, the question for decision was whether William Palmer had forged Smith's signature. Remarking generally upon the evidence of this witness, the Lord Chief Justice said it was a question for the jury to decide what reliance was to be placed on the testimony of this man, who had denied his signature to the instrument produced, and then allowed that it might be his signature. Then they had his acknowledgment that he had received five pounds from the prisoner, and the jury must ask themselves whether he had received that five pounds for attesting the signature of Walter Palmer. There was also the fact of his being concerned in effecting an insurance upon the life of Walter Palmer for thirteen thousand pounds, when he knew that Walter Palmer had no means of livelihood except through an allowance from William Palmer or his mother. And they must also take into consideration his admission that he had been concerned in endeavouring to effect an insurance for ten thousand pounds on the life of bates whom he knew to be a man living in lodgings at six shilling and sixpence per week and that he got himself appointed agent to an insurance society for that purpose all these things must be taken into account in deciding upon the credibility of the witness smith his lordship then proceeded to say that that was all the evidence which had been adduced and to direct the attention of the jury generally to the state of the pecuniary transactions between cook and the prisoner to the loss of the betting-book to the alleged tampering with the postboy for the purpose of upsetting the jar to the resemblance of cook's symptoms to death by strychnine and above all to the purchase of strychnine by the prisoner the case was then in their hands the evidence was before them and they were to decide by that evidence not to convict the prisoner upon suspicion or strong suspicion merely but to weigh the evidence to the best of their judgment to give the prisoner the benefit of any doubt if doubt existed but not to be deterred by any consideration from a due discharge of their duty mr sergeant shee took exception to the summing up of the lord chief justice considering that the question whether the symptoms of cook were the symptoms of strychnia was a question which ought not to have been put, unless there had been added, or symptoms that might have been produced by any other cause. Lord Campbell told the jury that unless they considered the death of Cook was consistent with symptoms of death by strychnine, they ought to acquit the prisoner. Mr. Sergeant Shee urged that the question ought not to have been put, in his opinion, but if overruled, 
he must submit. The Lord Chief Justice said he had submitted to the jury that it would be for them to consider whether the symptoms of Cook were such as might have resulted from natural disease, but if they thought those symptoms such as might have been produced by strychnine, then they were to consider the evidence, and come to a conclusion as to whether the prisoner administered it or not. The jury then retired to consider their verdict, at eighteen minutes past two, the judges also retiring, and the prisoner, who wore upon his features an expression of mute despair, was then, according to such cases, taken down below. The crowds in the court broke up into noisy conversational groups as to the nature of the coming verdict, and the news that the jury were deliberating travelled fast and far, causing intense excitement outside the court, where an immense mass of people speedily assembled. During the absence of the jury, there was one little incident full of significant import which awakened marked attention, that is, the entrance into court of the Reverend J. Davis, chaplain of Newgate, who took his seat upon the bench near the seats of the judges, in full canonicals, ready to pronounce the final Amen, when sentence of death should be pronounced, if the jury convicted the prisoner. The jury re-entered the court at thirty-five minutes past three, having been absent one hour and seventeen minutes. Upon the appearance of the jury every whisper ceased, and men seemed scarcely to breathe in the solemnity of the moment. The judges then resumed their seats, and the prisoner was replaced at the bar, looking calm and quiet. The clerk of the arraigns inquired of the jury whether they had agreed upon a verdict. The foreman replied in the affirmative. The clerk, do you find the prisoner at the bar guilty or not guilty? Foreman, we find him guilty. The prisoner received the verdict almost unmoved. The clerk then inquired what the prisoner had to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon him. The prisoner made no answer. The Chief Justice, in a solemn and impressive manner, then passed sentence of death upon the prisoner in the usual form, and this extraordinary trial was brought to a conclusion. Printed at the Steam Press of G. Lawrence, 29 Farringdon Street, City End of Section 23 End of the Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer For the Rougely Poisoning Which Lasted Twelve Days by Anonymous.